Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on a recent conversation I had with Spotlight On alum, Lauren Spaulding, also known as her Mixalot, who, in her role as co-founder and executive director of FemHouse, interviewed me for their Backstage Pass program. Her Mixalot joined me on Spotlight On earlier this year, and we covered a lot of ground. Missy Elliott, Echo Chambers, how she broke Chingy, paid internships, how to get noticed in the music industry, and of course, the life-changing work she does at FemHouse. FemHouse fosters more equitable opportunity for women and gender-expansive individuals in the technical and behind-the-scenes areas of music. They're creating the future producers, mixers, engineers, DJs, artists, and executives of the industry by providing education and scholarships, cultivating community, propagating visual representation, and offering professional development opportunities. I may be biased, but I think you might want to learn more about how to get involved with their mission to change our music industry at www.thisisfemhouse.com slash involved or get the link in our show notes. Okay, so Femhouse continues to expand their mentorship initiatives and their Backstage Pass interview series highlights all of their industry contacts and spotlights the myriad careers available in music. That's where I came in. Backstage Pass highlights the professional community that FemHouse has had the privilege of getting to know while illuminating the possibilities for a new generation to come. So what's that mean? Her mix-a-lot on the mic and me in the hot seat for an interview and audience Q&A. It was an honor to be on, and I hope I said something useful or at least entertaining for someone. Here we go. Good afternoon, FemHouse fam. It is me, Hermit Salat, co-founder, executive director of FemHouse. I am here with Lawrence Perrier, the chief commercial officer of Light. Did I say your last name right? You're one of the few people that ever have. Yes, you did. Thank you. <laughs> He's affectionately known around FemHouse fam as the other LP. I won't refer to him every time I call him that, maybe a couple times at Ribbon. But thank you for being here with us for Backstage Pass today. Thank you, LP, for being here with us. You know that you and I could just, we could rattle and prattle on for hours. I'm going to try and keep it succinct for the community here. Your biography to me reads as just sort of like a, a masterclass in creating the life that you want professionally. Tell me your origin story. Like, how did you end up here with me in this moment right now? <laughs> I feel like a Marvel character. Uh, you kind of sound like one on paper. <laughs> well, it depends on how far back you want to go. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give you two seconds of the real origin story, and then we could talk about the career stuff. But I think one needs to be said to go with the other. And first of all, thank you for having me. It's, it's great to be with you. And yes, we could do this forever. And I'll look forward to doing it more. I'm a child of the 70s. And that implies a lot of different things. It's sort of a galaxy far, far away, a long, long time ago this place called the 70s. 
and all the food was artificial. All the toys had some kind of toxic paint on them. And there was a real lack of adult supervision. And so what that meant was there was a real freedom to pursue interests. And at the same time, you know, I came from a fairly stable middle-class background. So I had access to music lessons, played piano. There was always a record player in records. There's never been a time that I can remember where there was no music. And if there was a time, I don't want to remember it. But it's been, music has been a part of my life forever. I was a fan very, very early on, came up as a kid in the world of classic rock and all that stuff. And then throughout the 80s, just the world blossomed. Hip hop, punk, more classic rock. I was a deadhead, metalhead, everything. It was great. It was a great time to be a music fan because although music was still defined by genre, people were allowed to cross genre. And I really felt like my generation was the first people I got to benefit from that. And now it just seems like you'd never be defined only by one thing, but it was really great. And so I played music. I was in bands. You know, I wasn't one of those people that had a clear aspiration about I'm going to make my life in music. In fact, I never really had a clear aspiration about what I was going to make my life doing. And so I initially studied computer science <laughs> because I've always, I've always had a healthy ego and thought I could do things that I'm just not capable of. <laughs> but at the same time, I was always playing. I was always in a band. And because I was the least talented one, I was always the one that was doing things like getting the gigs, printing the tickets, counting the money, making sure business happened. And so that was really the origin story. That was like the radioactive spider was being in a band and being the one that liked all the other stuff. And obviously there's a long road between here and there, but that's the very beginning. That's awesome. I think that one of the ways that you and I tend to connect is, is based on fandom, right? To me, that's sort of the common thread. It's certainly been the common thread in my career, but to me, that's also like one of the common threads in your career. So tell me, that to me feels like a very organic way for you to end up in a company called Light. I know all about Light, but tell, tell the folks about Light and, and what you do there and, and why you think it's important. Light is really, for me, it's a few things. On the sort of personal slash professional side, my, my job, my work, the things I, I get to go do and be involved with are really sort of an articulation of, for me of everything that came before. If you're a musician or a creative person, you know, you can leverage all the capabilities, all the theory, all the tools, all the practice you had to make your next creative thing. And that's really what light is doing for me in my career. It's the sum total of everything that came before. It's caring about fans. It's caring about creators. It's caring about the business people. And it's really an attempt to try to align the interests of all those people, all those constituents, because they're not always aligned in the music business. And there's winners and losers oftentimes. So that's sort of the, what I would call the soft side of light or the, the part of light that's, a, that's for me. But bigger picture, what light is doing in a very broad sense is trying to make access to live events easier and on a good day, even fun, as opposed to the paradigm we all probably grew up in with, how do you even get a concert ticket? And like, what do I have to do? What, what seven chambers of hell do I have to walk through just to, just to get the concert? I mean, how many of us are so excited once we work in the music business that it gets easier to get concert tickets? Because we don't have to do that anymore. Lots of standing outside in lines on Sunset Boulevard for me. Sleeping out, standing Sleeping in out line. There, yeah. um, you know, and for probably people younger than me, like banging away at the computer, fighting with bots and scalpers and other fans. The whole experience, like not starting on a high note, right? Like. Okay. 
And I, I've often thought about this idea of like, is that part of why, say, a concert is so great? Because I had to go through so much hell to get there. I don't really believe it. I don't really believe it. But, you know, there could be an element of that of like, I suffered and clawed my way to get here and I'm going to have a good time. But I'd like to take that away and make the elements of planning your event with your friends, figuring out how you're going to get tickets and, and actually getting them in an easier way as sort of fun and as exciting and as sort of a, have as much buildup as when you actually get to the event and see the talent. So that that's sort of the aspirational version of light. Tell me how that impacts artists and insofar as you've seen, especially as a great advocate, as an artist yourself, as an advocate for artists. What do you think is sort of like the, the secret sauce there for creators? Again, the, the thread, the through line for me is that the majority of my career has been about helping artists connect with their fan base. And that's taken a lot of different forms over the years. Early on, it was just in the early days of, of the web. It was helping artists understand what it was, build websites, develop those connections with their fans. So email lists, you know, really sort of early initial 1.0, how does an artist now connect directly with their fans? Over time, that really evolved into things like monetizing those relationships, right? Like now I'm going to have an online store or I'm going to sell tickets through my website or I'm going to have a fan club evolved even further into, well, now maybe we can have exclusive content or a video channel or what have you, and then social media. But the, the prevailing theme has been about bringing the artist and the fan together. What Light is doing for creators is sort of at a deeper level, helping them understand something about their fan. And that something is, where is their fan and what do they want? And so we do that by asking the fans and by making opportunities available for fans to say, hey, here I am in Des Moines, Iowa. I want to come see you. I'm going to put down my credit card and make a reservation to come see you. Now, you as the creator, you as the artist, you as the business team can start to look at all that data that piles up and stacks up around the country. And you find these little pockets, whether it's Des Moines or Sacramento or, you know, the obvious ones like New York and Chicago. But you start to get a real understanding of like, where actually are my fans? I might have social media data, might have streaming data. Those are people that are interested in me. And maybe some of them definitely are fans, but they're not all people that want to commit to a night out with me, that want to take their significant other for a celebration with me, that want to put money directly in my pocket and support my career. And so those are the people that we want to make sure artists have visibility into and then can just go right to them and not be mediated by the current infrastructure of other interests that have an idea about who an artist should play to and how much money they should make and how big the room should be, or even what kind of room it is. If you know where your fans are and how many of them there are, anything can be a concert venue. I think you see that a lot in, in the electronic music world. It doesn't have to be a club. It doesn't have to be a field. It doesn't just have to be a warehouse. It could be an aquarium. It could be a yacht. It could be, it could be anything. But it all starts with understanding how many people want to see you and where they are. And then you could build the experience around that. You know, I've been having a lot of conversations, especially here in this venue around like Web3 and just like the way things seem to be changing and almost reshifting the power back to the creators. And so, you know, you and I have just spent a lot of time talking about the creator and fan relationship and how symbiotic it is, and how important it is. And it feels like light is moving in that direction. How are you seeing this impact 
the industry as we know it and, and sort of art as we know it, like you said, like anything's a video, like when you take these limits off of how we think, these limits that have been imposed on us for at least a generation in this industry about how things should go, it's been really, really compelling and fun to me just as a fan, right? To see all these limits being sort of blown up. How are you seeing artists respond? How are you seeing fans respond? How are you seeing business teams respond? How are you seeing labels and promoters respond? Well, I mean, there's a lot in that in that question, but That's what I, I always ask the compound question with you, I'm just like, <laughs> how do I turn this one question into a 15 minute conversation? Yeah, I'll, I'm going to go put on my professor jacket with the <laughs> uh, with the elbow patches. And uh, one thing I would say is that there's been. There's been a lot of revolutions in the music business, especially over the last 30 years. We talked about sort of web one. We've talked about social media. These were all things that were initially heralded as these are going to be the things that empower the artist. Streaming. This is going to be the thing that makes the gatekeeper go away. I'm not so sure about what it looks like from where you sit, but it seems like we often end back with the old boss is the new boss. That's the glib way of saying it comes down to access to capital a lot of times. And the incumbents are very good at the banking part of the music business. And I think that that's a piece that we are earnestly trying to address with the platform. You know, this notion that if I can connect you with the fan and I can give the fan a way to transact with you, I'm just a platform that's in the middle. I'm not a media company with some other ambition. I'm not trying to sell advertising on the back of your relationship with your fan or have some kind of like data play where I've got some thing going on that neither one of you really would like if you knew what it really was. Or <laughs> Again, it's like, it's trying to align the interests. We want the artist and the fan and the business people to all row in the same direction instead of like counting each other's money. Mm-hmm. And so how I see that changing, I don't know. I think I tend to be a little more skeptical. Like I, I have to temper my idealism and my enthusiasm because at the at the end of the day, I am a technology person, a technologist. I could be a, a sort of techno utopian. I love all this stuff as much as the next person. I also try to be very sober about the the other side of it. And I think the the biggest lesson for me in the last several years has been the the social media lesson, right? Like not only what it did in terms of Artists flocked to these new platforms, built their fan bases there, and now have to pay in the form of advertising dollars to reach their own fans that they drove there in the first place. That was sort of a bad enough realization that I came to on the business side. But then, you know, just the other societal repercussions like, yeah, social media is fun. Yes, it has all these other things that are going on with it, but it's super challenging and troubling and led to a lot of bad outcomes that we can talk about or not. But I, I can see the good and the bad. Technology itself isn't inherently good or bad. It's it's obviously, it's a tool that people bring their models and mindsets to. But what I really want to do is build something that creates a moat for artists, a financial moat, because the financial moat is the one that protects them from all those other interests. People talk about artists take advances artists sign away rights. And it's not because they're logically thinking about it that way. They're thinking about how do I fund the next project? How do I make the film? How do I make the short film that goes with this video, that goes with this album I just made? How do I make the album? How do I go on the road for three weeks and do something better than eat ramen and live in a van? Like they need access to capital. 
in ways that don't sign away and mortgage their future. And I think that's something we would like to try to play a part in. And if there's other technologies that can do that, I'm like, hats off. And if it's tokenized, whatever, all good. But I don't know that those other things yet have met my bar for keeping outside interests out of the artist's pocket. That is a really good answer. Thank you. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I care a little. <laughs> Just a touch. So that's a good segue into sort of like, I guess, act two of this conversation. I just want to talk with you a little bit about passion. You're one of the most passionate guys that I know as, as the audience saw, like I sort of touched on earlier, your, your, your bio sort of reads as just a map through your, your passions, all your passions. And like, there are intersections and touch points, but it's so rich and just all of your interests. How is passion sort of like acting as your compass as you pursue things both professionally and, and personally. I mean, you do social commentary, you speak on panels, you, I mean, you do a little bit of everything. Tell me about that. And, and, and like, how, how do you, how do you maintain that too? Especially, you know, like you said, you're a child of the seventies, right? Like how are you not burned out on this hellscape of an industry that we're all tethered to? <laughs> well, the first answer, if it's not the obvious one is I have an ego the size of Mount Rushmore. And I love to hear myself talk and see my name in print. So that should probably answer all the questions yeah, right there. Yeah, you, 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 you get in the answer there and everybody be like, ah, oh, got it. Yeah, digital face. The word passion is an interesting one to me. And other people have heard me rant about it before. And I think that I'll, I'm, I'll do what I do, which is I'll give you the nuanced answer. And that is, first of all, as it relates to my career, I wouldn't say that I've been a spoiled brat is probably the better way to say it because I, 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 have, I don't have a good ability to do things for very long that I don't want to do. I become that person that you don't want around. I get cranky. I get toxic. Like you don't want me in a situation that I don't want to be in. I'm just not a professional. I don't know how to do it. I behave poorly and I'm not proud of it, but I know it about myself. So I try to put myself in situations where I know my soul is being fed enough it gives cover to my professionalism so that then I can actually do the work. And that's a real answer. That's like not me being, I'm not feeding you bullshit there. It's true. It's really hard for me to focus if I can't find that spark of engagement for myself. And it's probably limited my career. So passion plays a weird role. It guides a lot of the things I want to do and that I get involved with. But in my day-to-day -day work, I try to leave passion out of it and rely on capability and professionalism such that I can muster it and a sense of responsibility to my colleagues and to a project, because I don't believe that you should necessarily follow your passion in your day to day. If passion's all you're running on, you're incredibly susceptible to the highs and lows. You're incredibly susceptible to manipulation because passion isn't a professional attribute. And so my passions are in the genre, in the, in the industry, in the field, that is feeding my passion. But my work is an articulation of my capabilities. I, maybe the other way to say it is I, I'm an old sellout. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be an idealist and now I'm a sellout. <laughs> hey, we love, uh, we love nothing more than self-awareness. So thank you for, for your honesty there. It's, it's always hard to formulate questions for you to do so much. Give me an overview of your top three favorite things that you've done this year. Oh, this year. Wow. Wow. 
It's funny because the answers changed recently. So the top three things, let's leave them not in order because that's that's too much. And I don't we don't have time for me to, to <laughs> sit here and struggle. Some of my favorite things that I've done this year in the context of my professional life, because actually all of the favorite things I've done have nothing to do with my career. You know, um, we're going to get to those, too. Yeah. Children and family and significant other. That's that's the real stuff. But in my career, probably the biggest canvas I've had to paint on was this project I did with the David Bowie estate for a campaign called Bowie 75. And that was two retail locations, one in London and one in New York that were created pop-ups, temporary, that were created to commemorate David's 75th birthday. And they ran from October of last year till January of this year, encompassing his 75th birthday in early January. It's an artist that I have immense love for. In fact, after we're done here tonight, I'm going to see the new documentary at IMAX. So don't make me run too far over. And who I had, you know, I, I worked for professionally for a long time. I ran a company that David was an owner of. I'd worked on projects after that as needed. Whenever the whenever the bat sign, whenever the equivalent of the bat sign was the Bowie, maybe it was the lightning bolt. They'd light up the lightning bolt and I'd see it and I'd get on the, the phone to the commissioner. That was a wonderful project. And obviously there's a lot to unpack with that. So that was that would be one of the three. Another is in the spring, we had the latest box set that I produced from the archives of Keith Richards come out. And that's an ongoing relationship I have as well, where every year, year and a half, we put out a box set of stuff from Keith's vast and fascinating and amazing archive. And so one of his his second solo album, second studio album as a solo artist, we did a beautiful box set of that found a live album that had been recorded, but never heard. So I think when I cracked the tapes, it might've been the first time they were played. Just an incredibly fun project. But the other is that at Light, we're in the process right now of welcoming several score, literally several score new lighters and the assets of UK-based company that we purchased over the last week. So we now have a presence in the UK, EU, and Australia that we didn't have um, when you and I booked this call. Any one of those things would have been year-making for me in the past, but this project that Light's embarking upon now, it's the thing. It's the thing. It's, it's, it's super exciting for me and, and everybody else at Light. It's going to be super exciting for the industry once we can finally articulate what we're going to do with all the new tools and toys and how we're going to work with our existing partners and lots of new ones. Yeah, I mean, that's like I'm knee deep in that right now. And I've been it with a couple hundred other people who are super smart and driven and talented. And hopefully I'll get to do less work because now there's more of them to do it for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's my real strategy. Yeah, your your professionalism is showing. Be careful. (laughs) Congratulations, man, on all of that. I don't don't even want to, if I touch any of that with a 10 foot pole outside of pleasantries, we'll be here until tomorrow this time. So I'm just say congratulations all of that is dope a big shout out to light obviously all of you guys are fan uh your fearless leader aunt is is on our board of directors uh, yeah it's a great champion of both fans and artists and creators and you guys work hard over there you're working hard for the right reasons and to the correct end so i'm excited to see what y'all do with it congratulations yeah, thank you. It's really exciting. It's really exciting. Again, it's a lot of work. That's that's what we've signed up for is a lot of work. There's no easy path to greatness, right? It's what we all, I mean, it's an easy word to say. It's a cliche word to say, but we th- these aren't these aren't our jobs. Like this is what we're doing. We're going we're going to do it. 
as greatly as we possibly can. We will be back with more Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media, after the break. And now, back to Spotlight On. The top three things that you're proud of, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking professionally. Top, top three things that you're proud of for this year, and top three things that you're just proud of. Wow, that I'm proud of. I mean, again, that, that's, that's another one of my trigger words because, you know, it's one of the seven deadly sins. Yeah. I try to be careful about what I take pride in and I don't want to take pride for other people's accomplishments. So, sure. you know, if, if my son does something really excellent, I try to be careful to tell him how happy I am for him and that I'm not proud because I didn't do shit. <laughs> you know? So I might nuance the answer a little bit, but I have essentially three children. I have my oldest son, I have my youngest son, and my significant other has a daughter who is a daughter to me. All three of them, they could take up all three of those slots, but I'll put, I'll put the next generation in one of those slots. Again, pride around the fact that they're just incredible people. Like when, I, when I'm having a bad day and I think about the environment and the political situation and the hellscape that can be modern life, and then I talk to them. And I see how they think about the world and how they do and don't classify people, how they can see people in ways that I'm only really just learning to now as an old man. And I'm learning because of them and because of my interactions with people like you. Mm-hmm. If, if there's any pride in, in that at all for me, it's pride in some ability I have to actually still be open enough. You know, the learning from them is, is phenomenal. I guess I'm proud of my relationship because it's hard. Relationships are hard, right? My significant other has to put up with me, right? Like, I mean, (laughs) the amount of energy I put into my career and into all the things that I like to do. I like to be able to have the podcast and I like to be able to write and I like to be able to speak and I like to be able to work really hard on behalf of light. And then I like to go do these other projects on the side. There's not a lot of time in the day. And I'm really grateful for her and proud of the fact that we still find the time. You know, we still make time. Wow, I have to find a third thing to be proud of? This one's kind of small, but it's, it's like, it's like kind of in my heart a little bit. So I feel a little vain sharing it. But I'm on the Arts Commission in my town. I live in a little town outside of Seattle that nobody's ever heard of. We had a concert series in the park over the summer. And on the Arts Commission... I said, you know what, let's, let's really stick it to these people in this town. Let's get the most crazy bands that we could possibly find. And not crazy defined as like free jazz or anything like that, but let's challenge them. Yeah. So we had, we had a band from South America. We had a band from West Africa. It was basically like, let's, let's see, like, well, let's not just give them like Peter, Paul and Mary for seven yeah. Saturdays in a row. It was so great because the community showed up. And like people came out, the crowds got bigger every week. And I was really happy to know that I live in a community of people that it's a fairly homogenous looking group of people, but they were supportive of the arts and they were open to being challenged. That was a, that was a nice, like, again, in a, in a kind of a fucked up world, it was nice to see that it's a little thing. 
but it's not a little thing because that's like your neighbors and your community. And yeah. now when I walk down the street and I see somebody walking their dog and I know they were at the concert at the park, I could say, I feel better about them. I'm not afraid of them. I'm not wondering what kind of asshole they are. I know that at least there's something in them that they're open to the arts. They're open to people that don't look like them. That it actually meant a lot to me. A question that I wasn't planning on, on asking, but just like hearing more, you contextualizing more your bio. Where the fuck do you get this 24 hours a day that you seem to have access to that I certainly haven't found in my local hours in a day store? Like, where the fuck are you finding time to be a present father and partner? And well, by the way, you have to ask them if, if, if what I'm saying <laughs> measures up. I'm just telling you from my perspective, you know, when you said the origin story, I went into myth making mode. Um, <laughs> this may not be a popular answer, but it's again, it's the truth. I'm a recovering alcoholic and I don't drink, you'd be shocked at how much time you spend drinking. <laughs> Especially when you're like a degenerate, when you're a degenerate alcoholic like I am. You know, that was hours of the day. And now I have hours where like I'm actually clear and productive and I need something to do without getting squirrely. So that's a big part of it. Like I wake up earlier because I'm not hungover. I have more hours in the day because <laughs> I'm not pouring sugar water, fire water down my throat. So um, part of it is I, I, I have a lot of interests. Like I'm just, I have, I, I have very little discipline and I have a lot of interests. So I get involved with a lot of things. I find it hard to say no to things that intrigue me. And then I just try to find the time. It's got to be on, I, I can imagine the audience must be like, this guy's a moron. Like it's, it's, it's happenstance. It's not, a, it's not an articulated plan. It's just, wow, that sounds interesting. I think I would like to do that. And then I go try to do it. The other thing too, is like, I'm not terribly afraid of failing publicly. I'm, I'm probably very embarrassing to the people around me, but it kind of like doesn't affect me. It's just, I don't realize that I'm embarrassing. So it's all good. <laughs> all right. Well, shit, we all, you always have an answer for something and it's always a good one. Um, you're sitting in front of your younger self. You're kind of an old man, aren't you? So let me give you, you're sitting in front of 25-year-old you, 15-year-old you, 25-year-old you, 35-year-old you. What do you say to each of those views? It's a hard question because, um, well, I guess it's easier because in, in, from my perception, there's just me and you here right now. So I could answer it more honestly than I'd answer if I, if I actually had any idea how many people were watching. Um, it would be terrifying. But the truth of the matter is, Despite having lived a lot of life between 15 and 35, there wasn't really a lot of emotional difference yeah. in me between 15 and 35, maybe even 15 and 45. It's only been the last half decade or more that, that I've grown up in any way, in any meaningful way. Not to use recovery speak with you, but a lot of people say that you kind of get arrested at the age you were when you really when your alcoholism bloomed and I was a pretty early bloomer. And so I had that. I never really dealt with anything as an adult without that there. I, I always had social anxiety and the, that little voice was always really loud. The, the, the bad guy voice in the head was always like, he wasn't on my side. Whatever countervailing voice there was just wasn't loud enough or I couldn't hear it. And so I think what I would say is just go easy, man. Like, you know, I, I was so, I was so self-conscious, so self-conscious. All 15 year olds are, I think I, I bet I've been told that, that it wasn't just me, but I'm not sure that all 35 and 45 year olds are. 
And when you're that age, there's a lot less excuse for it. And there's a lot less excuse for the bad behavior that comes with it, the insecurity, the lashing out, the whatever, you know, there's just a lot of bad behavior that comes with that. I think I would have had a consistent message looking back for that person. But I think as that person got older, what I probably would have said was, you have more responsibility in the outcome here than you're taking on. Like the world isn't going to get better for you. The world isn't going to help you if you don't ask for help. People aren't going to continue to accept this and still want to be around you. You don't get to walk through life like carrying an asterisk shaped umbrella over your head saying, you know, I'm a great guy, but, or I'm only an asshole sometimes. Or, and so I think that it's really important to understand at an early age that you do have responsibility and agency. We could spend another hour on whether or not philosophically we believe in free will. That, that would be fun to do. But you do have responsibility for the choices you make. Every time you don't take responsibility for the choice you make, you're still making a choice. Mm-hmm. And just because you're pretending there's no responsibility, it doesn't mean that there aren't people affected or that your future selves aren't affected. The way I see it now is like life's a choose your own adventure book. And that's great. That's empowering. And that's exciting. Like you could ask the people who know me best. And I think one of the things they would tell you is that I like adventure. Like all these things you talk about in my career, they're just little adventures. They're like, how can I get scared and then have to show up? And if I can like, if I can get really like, if I get that scared feeling, then I know it's going to be a good thing. And if I don't run away, like when you get scared and run away, that's like, that's, that sucks. But when you get scared and then say, I'm here. Like, let me be scared. And then like, let's walk through it and let's, let's walk towards it. Let's see what we can do. That's the life I want. So yeah, that's, that's my answer. What are you looking for in your next adventure? My next adventure. Well, I feel like I just started it professionally for sure. (laughs) What I'm looking for is a good night's sleep because now that we have team members in pretty much every time zone, I'm looking for a nap. My lack or my stumbling for an answer speaks to the fact that I don't I don't plan that way. You know, I don't know what the next adventure will be. I don't ask the universe to like present me with something per se. What I would ask for my next adventure is that it gets delivered by someone who I want to go through the adventure with and that it's not something I really want to do, but I have to accept a shitty person or people in order to have the experience. Life's short and it's really it's really important to have the no asshole rule, even if it means some limitations, you know, even if it means you might not get to do all the things you want to do. For me, other people have a high tolerance for bullshit, but I'm the happiest I've ever been because I have a pretty rigid no asshole rule. You and I talk often about the no asshole rule. We could do a whole other backstage pass about that. And like you said, life is short. There isn't a lot of hours in the day and there's no knowing how many of those hours in a row you're going to get or you wake up in a St. Peter or wherever the sun's like, oh shit, you know? So no ass. St. Peter. <laughs> is, that, is that the guy that's at the gate? I, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> I, 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 if there, are there questions? Cause I had a question for you. If I, if I can. Uh, there are amazingly no questions. I think that's because you have extremely verbose answer no, no, nobody wants to hear nobody wants to hear the old white guy talk shit <laughs> and by the way i don't blame him <laughs> everybody's like i'm not dropping any questions in the chat and then having this guy talk to me for seven and a half minutes oh. 
You guys are missing out. You, you're fucking up for not asking questions. But uh, yeah, what's what's your question for me? What? How do you think about the passion question? Like, is, like what does passion mean to you in in your in your creative life and in in the professional, the non-creative professional part of your life? I was really grateful for your answer because it's something that I'm still sort of trying to navigate in a healthy way for myself. And you gave me something to think about. I often think like, man, like you go to get a coffee or whatever, and you're just like, this motherfucker is just going to give me coffee and give people coffee until 3.30 p.m. And then just like go home and play with their kids or whatever and not be kept up at night by the state of the music industry. There's something really compelling. You know, it's probably because I, I have a kid who's two. There's something really compelling to me about being able to put it away sometimes. And I'm still sort of trying to navigate the healthy line for myself for passion, like being able to go to work and then just come home and then go to work and then just come home. Like that sounds fucking awesome. But also I know, like, like you said, I, I also, I too become an asshole when I'm not interested and when I'm not pushed and when I'm not feeling passion. On one hand, I think I'm incredibly lucky to have passion that has driven me to this point. On the other hand, I'm constantly trying to negotiate with how much of it I'm letting drive my personhood. That makes sense to me. You know, there's a, I don't know if you, if you read them at all or if you've come across any of this stuff, but there's this sort of like business personality guy, Scott Galloway. And, you know, he's a little obnoxious, but he has this rant about not telling kids to follow their passion at least as it relates to their career. He's like, find the thing you're good at and invest in that and double down on it and you will be very successful. And then your passion, like that's just work-life balance or that's just carving out time or whatever it is. But if, you, if you're like, in, if you're doing the thing you're super good at day to day, nobody can stop you. Yeah. But what if you're doing the thing you're passionate at and you suck? Like what if I decided I was gonna try to be a professional musician? It would have been a horrifying outcome for everybody involved. <laughs> but I was super passionate about it, let me tell you. Carrying the equipment at three o'clock in the morning. I loved all of it. I loved all the bullshit, but I wasn't good at it. Yeah, I, I think that I think that there's a generational aspect at play too. It seems to me it might only be getting worse. But you know, there there is this idea, I think when we were coming up, you, you're a child of the 70s, I'm a child of the 80s. All the cool guys, right, were monetizing their passions. Like all the hip hop guys are monetizing their passions. And at once I feel incredibly blessed to know a purpose and like work toward it. But it's also terribly unhealthy in a lot of ways. I would like to see future generations sort of move away from the idea that you have to monetize passion for it to be valid. Sitting in your backyard painting landscapes is as impactful to you as it is to you as an artist, whether or not someone buys the painting, you know, like I said, it's something I'm, I'm, I'm constantly sort of in conflict with myself about. And then the other hand of that, especially as an artistic person, as a creative person, I can often feel a great duty to share my gifts, you know, like mm. it's, it's not lost on me that a lot of people don't have gifts and that the job I think of artists is to contribute those gifts to a civilized society. I, I think it's a conversation that, and you probably know this, that like you just continue to have with yourself day in and day out. And that's growth, that's personhood, that's that's being a, a human being. I've got a question. This I like uh -oh. this question. 
when is it important to be an asshole and when should you hold back? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Well, I'm not an expert on the second part of that question. (laughs) Nor am I. I Only that I get one perspective here. (laughs) I mean, I feel like I should say gather around kids. It's important to never be an asshole. (laughs) It's important to never. That's, I think that's absolutely false. I think it's extremely important to be an asshole. You know what? It's important to show fire at the right times. Yes, for right. sure. What's the definition of an asshole? It's important never to be unethical. It's important never to be needlessly cruel. So can you be an ethical asshole? Can you be an asshole in the service of something bigger? There's a lot of things that people define as being an asshole that actually is not being an asshole and it's where people get undermined constantly. So is it being an asshole by having a boundary and saying, no, I don't accept that you're going to try to treat me that way personally or professionally. Are you being an asshole? The other person might say, why are you being an asshole? That's a pretty good place. If that, if that's the definition of an asshole, I would encourage you to be an asshole when your boundaries are under question. It's important to be an asshole when you're being used and you've demonstrated repeatedly or someone has demonstrated to you repeatedly that in the grand ledger of life, they have more on the take side than on the give side. <laughs> That's probably, you know, but again, that probably relates to boundaries. Again, the things that people think of being an asshole usually have to do with you standing your ground. So when you, when should you not be an asshole? When you're standing your ground because you're vain or when you're standing your ground because you're afraid to stop standing your ground because you've stood your ground so far that now you're invested in standing your ground, not the actual position, then it's probably not right to be an asshole. Then you should probably say, why exactly am I doing this? And if you don't have an emotionally or intellectually honest reason for what you're doing, then you're probably just an asshole. Don't be a bully is all I'll say. Don't be a bully. A bully is the biggest asshole. An asshole that's uh, standing up to the little guy or standing up to the person that's being bullied is no asshole. I have another question from Kirsten Wiltger. I hope I said you something right if I did not. For someone who's in a nine to five, dreaming of going into a more creative direction, but feeling a lot of fear of the unknown, possibly unsteady income, imposter syndrome, et cetera, how to honor yourself by following this new path that you want to try when I feel like sometimes that seems irresponsible in this corporate world? That's a good fucking question. That's a hard question because cost of living is out of control and it just seems like it's harder and harder to exist further you move up the food chain even so i'm not touching that shit with a 10-foot pole it's a question that's hard to answer because everybody's answer like well let me just say like my answer would come from a place of privilege and might be condescending so my first inclination the word i zeroed in on was Kirsten said something about responsibility. And what I would wonder is, does she have responsibilities to people other than herself? Because if she does, that's, it's a completely different answer. And all that fear and anxiety means something totally different. Mm-hmm. But if the, if the responsibility she's feeling is like, because my parents helped me pay for college or keeping up appearances or what have you, that's a little different. And it's still scary and it's still real. But ultimately, like your responsibility is to you. So what do you really want? What does your real self want? Is there a path for you to go down 
that is not shirking any other responsibilities you have to other people, real or imagined, because you don't want to stress yourself out? And how honest can you be about those responsibilities? Which ones are truly yours to shoulder? And if you could be clear about who you are accountable to and who you have true, tangible responsibilities to, my sense would be, and again, from a position of privilege, that it might be easier then to confront some of that fear and to take some of those chances because then the only person you're letting down by not doing it is you. And you don't want to do that. (laughs) You can, then you can't blame anybody else. And that's no fun. (laughs) I hope that helped at all. That was, that's a hard question. And I, I, I really feel for you struggling with it because there isn't, there isn't an easy answer. That doesn't sound like me saying, here's what you should do. And I don't like doing that. I hope, I hope that we helped. Uh, there's, there's a question here. Drusifer, how do I mm. let go of the negative voices in my head and my perceived notions of people not liking my music, whether it's fact or not, and how to keep pushing through it all? Well, I, I, I'll answer a little, but I think that might be a better question for you as a creative person. What, <laughs> it's funny because there's, I forget who said it. It comes up a lot as a cliche, but like, you can't believe the good reviews unless you're willing to believe the bad reviews. That's a very specific, like, just don't read any of it or read all of it. Have the, have the, the thick in the skin. But I, I sense that's not necessarily what you're talking about. But I would say that your creativity, first of all, has merit on its own. Like it has no, there's no artistic judgment at the first order. Like it's, you're doing something important right? You're putting, and you're doing something pretty fucking scary. Like I'm taking my creative output and, and then foisting it upon the world. Like that's scary. Even when it doesn't feel scary, sometimes you might just do it because you've got like an unconquerable ego and that's great too. But like, that's a vulnerable thing to do. So if you're willing to do it and you're willing to be vulnerable, then you're worried that people might not like it. The asshole version says, then that's not the field for you. Like if you're really worried about approval, a life in creativity where you share your creativity in the world might not be the best thing because it could lead to a lot of like angst and a lot of the illness you see creative professionals have. That's a bullshit answer. How do you deal with it as a creative person? It's one that I'm still struggling with too because I have a lot of shit that I'm sitting on that I don't think I'll ever release and I feel completely fine about that. A thing that you and I talk about a lot and have talked about in the past is that the creative thing for me at this point, it's hard for me to talk to other artists because I'm coming to it way late and I have all these other things that I've based my personhood on. The like artist thing for me, it's pure fun. It's it's like so unadulterated and pure that it's like I feel criminals like talking to people like Jusifer, who it sounds like wants to make a living at this, a true go at this. What I will say in regards to his question or their question specifically, somebody likes your shit and probably way more people than you think. The internet, if it's done nothing else, has confirmed this idea that there's truly a lid for every pot. And community building is something that takes time and and must be organic to stand. But you're going to find your people and keep looking and keep sharing and being vulnerable in that way. People like your shit. You just got to go find them. Uh, and yeah. that's, that's oversimplified, right? That's way easier said than done. And I recognize that. But the internet makes it as it possibly can be. You know, the other thing I would say is that you've already done the hard part. You've actually created something and yeah. you've put it out in the world. 
And I understand to build a career, you do need to find your audience and you need to not let that fear stop you from making more. Yeah. But you've done it once and nobody revoked your right to do it. So yeah. keep doing it. Keep doing it. Yeah, I agree. This is going to be my last question. It is from my dear friend and yours, Alexa. What are key indicators for when it's time to walk away from a project, a problem, a business decision, et cetera? How can I better weigh my costs and benefits? <laughs> oh, Alexa, are you trying to tell LP something? On I know. <laughs> I, just, I hope not because you just started a project together. Not subtle at all. <laughs> not subtle at all. Wow. Um, <laughs> all right. Let me try to. This is an inside joke. That, uh, so Alexa works for life. At life. Um, <laughs> and, and, and yeah, we're, we're, we're just busting our balls. You know, <laughs> that's okay. She, she, no, but good God, I shot myself in the foot. <laughs> it's a great question. When I was coming to light, when I, when I first met Ant and he, he presented the opportunity to come to light, i had actually had a few opportunities before me and I was really struggling because there were some that had more money. There were some that had like other prestige and then, and light was a, you know, it was at that time a very early startup but it was really resonating with me. And I really liked Ant to go to the other person's question. It felt irresponsible to make that decision. You know, you think about things like miles to feed and retirement savings and all that shit. And so I did something that is like so hokey that I made the three, I made the list of like, what are the pros and cons? And I did all the things down, you know, the, the, the opportunities down the side and the pros and cons. I still have the spreadsheet actually. And it helped. It helped. It may, I made the decision. Question mark as to whether I've made the right decision, but I'm still here four years in. So I, I made a decision and it helped. It helped unblock me. When it's time to leave is a harder one, right? Because there's a lot of hooks in you then. I'm invested. I've got a paycheck. I've got an ego. I've got vanity. I've got momentum. I've got opportunity. Like, what are you walking away from? Are you walking away from a toxic situation? Hopefully that's easier. What I try to tell people when they're making career decisions, and I, I think that that was the context for Alexa's question, is that it's better to go towards something than away from something. So when you get a cool new opportunity that you're so excited about, you're not running away from something, you're running towards something. And that's so exciting. Running away from something is awful. Like It's like somebody's beating down the door and they're going to chase you. That's a shitty feeling. How do you know when to do it? I think that in moments of clarity you know. I don't have a better answer than that, but I think you know. There's a lot of swirling. There's a lot of contradiction. There's a lot of noise. But just the fact that you're in the mindset of entertaining it is an indicator. Because if you were feeling fully articulated and you were feeling the things that you know you feel when things are good, you wouldn't be having that other conversation with yourself. So like, what's not good? doesn't mean it's time to leave. It does mean now I've got a list of things to address if I'm going to stay. Yeah, I feel that. And one thing, I don't know if you wanted an answer for me, Alexa, but and I actually don't know how close we are in age, but the metrics can shift all the time for all sorts of decisions that we're making as, as human beings, as professionals. But for me, time and impact are like metrics that are like pretty set in stone for me because 
I think my mindset shifted a great deal during the pandemic and, and with a couple of instances of, of great loss. It's just like, you know, we just, we don't have a lot of time and my things can stop on a dime. How am I spending my time and what impact is that time having on all the things that matter to me? So in case you're coming at it from an ex- existential place the way I tend to come at nearly everything um, and not trying to quit your job at light here at Backstage Pass. <laughs> That's just right. So fucked up. So fucked up. <laughs> Alexis just typed in the chat, PSA, not related to my relationship. <laughs> We're fucking with you, Alexa. It's too easy. I don't make it easier. <laughs> LP, it is always an immense pleasure. Like we could do this forever, as you know. I hope we do it a ton in the future. Thank you so much for being here, for sharing your insights on not just being like a good professional, right? But like being a good person and bringing your personhood to the things that sort of like light your fire and have tremendous impact artistically to fans around the world. Thank you for everything that you do, for everything that you are, for being a a dear one to me, a close one to me, for always making sure that I grow from our conversations. It's it's been an immense pleasure. And um, we'll do it again. Yeah, thank you. With or without a camera, yeah. Thanks for sharing this this platform. I was shocked to be asked. I didn't feel like it was a forum that needed to be opened up to me, but I appreciate it. And um, I've always loved hanging out with you and I'm looking forward to doing it around a table with a big meal, hopefully sooner than later. But yeah, thank you so much. So yeah, it was with great pleasure. Enjoy your Bowie film. Thank you, Finn House fans, for being here. Thank you, Alexa, for letting us roast you for the last <laughs> five to seven minutes. Yeah, thanks, Alexa. Here. Um, <laughs> I'll see everybody here soon. Herbix a lot. Peace. Have a good one. Thank you so much, Hermixalot, and everyone doing the good work at Femhouse. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson, and theme music by Q-Burns Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at spotlightonpod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.